Hello once again, gang. It's me, Dave, coming at you with the second of two alternate take versions of Dave's Daredevil podcast. This time we look once again at Daredevil Yellow number two, just as we did on Sunday. And my approach was a bit more streamlined in what turned out to be the final episode, and I think that came out much smoother. However, since there were several hours of work put into this, including an extensive Google Maps session, I didn't want it to go to waste. One quick note, though, I do mention an episode that I had planned revolving around deleted scenes and emails. Since the emails are back in the regular episodes, as you've already heard, that is null, and the deleted scenes have been, well, deleted. However, the material that was omitted will be explored very soon as we move from Daredevil Yellow directly into the Guardian Devil storyline. So they will be put back on the board, including the reason why Maggie is just as symbolically important to Daredevil as Jack was. Yep, that's just a little bit of a tease, but it's also a topic for another time. For now, enjoy an alternate look at Daredevil Yellow number two. Brendan's Magnus punches reality at twotruefreaks.com. Discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows. Trentus Magnus punches reality every Tuesday at twotruefreaks.com. Welcome to an all-new edition of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the show devoted entirely to Marvel's Man Without Fear, Daredevil. As per usual, I am your host, J. David Weeder, and as always, you can call me Dave. This week, we continue our journey into the theme of Origins by studying Daredevil Yellow issue by issue. Before we get started on that, I got a couple of things I want to address, one that I decided this week and one that I omitted last week by accident. Emails to the show are welcome. In fact, they're invited. What I'm going to do with emails is have an email-centric episode at the end of the season that's combined with some deleted scenes, discussions I've had on these episodes that, while interesting in and of themselves, did not fit into the episode for time or context. So what that will result in is 15 regular episodes in this season and a 16th episode that works with those emails and deleted scenes. So please send your emails. The email address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. Secondly, as this is coming out, Daredevil Season 2 is primed to hit Netflix the following Friday, this coming Friday, for you future people. And of course, the obvious question for a Daredevil podcast is, are you going to do a special covering the show? And this year, I've decided not to. I think the show is being covered so extensively in other locations, I don't necessarily need to add my voice to the mix, at least in the immediate. That doesn't rule anything out after this first season is over. What that allows me to do is actually sit back and enjoy the show without thinking about how I'm going to present it on a podcast, and also allows this show to remain comic-centric. And that's pretty much all I've got for preamble this time around. Uh, where did we leave off last week with Daredevil Yellow number one? Following the death of Karen Page, a destabilized Matt Murdock is looking back on his early days. 
we saw a college-age Matt Murdock watch his father, Jack Murdock, decide not to throw a fight in direct disobedience to the Fixer. And because of that disobedience, Jack was killed and his killers slipped through the justice system. An angry Matt decided to craft a costume and identity to bring the Fixer and Slade to justice. So while Foggy was putting the finishing touches on their brand new law firm, Nelson and Murdoch, Matt decided to head to Fogwell's gym as Daredevil for the first time. And that's where Daredevil Yellow number one left us. Which logically brings us to Daredevil Yellow number two. The September 2001 cover dated issue. It has a cover with art by Tim Sale and colors by Matt Hollingsworth, showing Jack working a punching bag in the confines of Fogwell's gym, while the operation of Daredevil matches the pose in the background. To make an obvious comparison on this cover, if you move from Daredevil number one into this, we have moved literally from the exterior of Fogwell's gym to the interior. We also have a more idealized version of Jack in his prime, hitting the punching bag, looking muscular. The colors on the cover are cool blue since we are inside, gives a dim light idea, with a sharp yellow on the outside, which to me, and I'm just possibly reading more into this than what's there, but it invokes a sunset. Truthfully, I see a lot in this cover that may or may not be there, but it is my impression. What I really like about this cover are the small details. You have a lunch pail and thermos on the bench, which also indicates to me a commitment on Jack's part. This is a full-time effort, as well as just being a nice, thoughtful piece of the overall picture. And within this cover lies a story entitled The Measure of a Man, written by Jeff Loeb, with art by Tim Sale, colors by Matt Hollingsworth, and letters by Wes Abbott. It is collected under the Daredevil Yellow title in both hardcover and paperback editions, as well as digitally available for purchase in both collected and individual forms through Comixology and the Marvel app, and the whole series is available through Marvel Unlimited. Jumping into the issue itself to give you the quick breakdown... The newly minted Daredevil announces himself to the group of underworld thugs in Fogwell's gym before tearing them a new one. His main targets, Sweeney, a.k.a. The Fixer, and his right-hand man, Slade, are next, and he takes both of them down a flight of stairs. While The Fixer manages to get the hell out of Dodge, Daredevil gives Slade a nice beating and insists that he testify to the murder of Jack Murdock. Next, Daredevil pursues The Fixer into a subway station and chases the older, out-of-shape man down the tracks themselves. But Daredevil doesn't manage to give the Fixer a beating, as Sweeney's own heart does the attacking and he drops dead right there on the tracks. The police arrive as Daredevil drags Sweeney's body back to the station and the newest hero in New York introduces himself in all of his yellow and brown glory. Meanwhile, Foggy has been interviewing candidates for the firm's new secretary and the pickings are slim and not just a little bit scary at times. Just as Foggy is about to give up, the final interviewee arrives and by the time that Matt returns to the office, Foggy has hired their new secretary. And the issue wraps up with Matt meeting a woman who will be an important part of his life and Daredevil's, Karen Page. Alright, with the formality out of the way, let us discuss Daredevil Yellow number 2. It's got a very surprising first page. Daredevil, basically from the waist up, is announcing himself, and the response from inside Fogwell's gym is laughter. And this kind of brings in a certain chorus that Daredevil's going to say that he was bullied, and those people laughed at him, they're not laughing now. I'm just going to earmark it for now and talk about that a little bit later in the episode. But this kind of spurred an interesting thought process to me, kind of something I explored in my idle time, the idea that superheroes were new. They were a completely new concept. So when a masked man jumps through your window, and I do want to point out that the window is broken. Remember last week when I pointed out a boarded up window? The reason that window was boarded up in the modern day is because Daredevil went through it. And I love details like that. However, when you have a masked man jumping through a window... 
announcing himself as Daredevil, the concept doesn't necessarily have the same instance in the past that it would in the present day. People weren't running scared at the thought of the Devil of Hell's Kitchen catching up with them. Not yet. And just to make a note as far as the difference between Daredevil number one and Daredevil Yellow's depiction of the exact same event, in Daredevil number one, essentially, Daredevil just strolled right into the room, almost polite. A little bit boastful, a little bit cocky, but polite. Here, we see Daredevil taking the offensive. There is a gorgeous and dynamic splash of Daredevil leaping across the table, hitting people as he goes, aiming right for the man called Porky, and he is named directly from Daredevil number one, sitting with a towel wrapped around his neck. First of all, you see more anger here, more aggressiveness, more assertiveness in Daredevil's form. In Daredevil number one, he basically strolled in, they lined up to beat him up, and he took care of business. Here, he's not waiting for that. He's going right at it. And one of the things I love the most is Porky, again named from Daredevil number one, gets exactly the same treatment. Daredevil grabs him by the ankles and spins him around before throwing him, which is comical and brings a certain over-the-top element to the fight. And as Matt is doing this, he's thinking about those bullies, and he also mentions that Jack Murdock was the greatest guy in the world, and he didn't want me to grow up to be like him. And for some reason, this line stood out to me. In terms of Matt and Jack's relationship, there's a lot that we've seen. Jack pushes Matt both in the physical sense as a child and going forward as an adult, as a specter, if you will. Jack's fear was that Matt would grow up to be unskilled, uneducated, without options the way he was. And that's a very valid fear, but at the same time, it occurred to me, why didn't Jack really try to change? Jack still pursued boxing. Jack didn't get an honest job from what we saw. Now, it's not out of the realm of omitted information. I would assume there would be something to put food on the table, but really, Jack never had any real drive, no ambition, no attempts, which kind of taints that speech of, it doesn't matter how many times a man gets knocked down to the mat, it's how many times he gets up. I almost wonder if Jack ever bothered to get up. And it didn't help my tainted perception of Jack and Matt's relationship that Matt talked about the two of them keeping secrets. Jack kept quiet that he probably knew what was occurring with the fixer and that the fights were fixed. Matt kept his training, assumptively with Stick, a complete secret as well, along with his senses. Matt hypothesizes that they're doing this to protect one another, and I don't think that's it. Now, bear in mind I might be more negative than normal just because I'm looking at things at a different perspective than I have before, but this almost reeks of that pride I spoke about last week. For example, if Jack said, hey, I know these fights are fixed, but the money's good, the prestige is good, Matt would have convinced him to stop, and Jack would have done it in order to seem pristine in his son's eyes. And there's a distinct possibility that Jack knew that would be the outcome, and that may be the core reason he didn't tell Matt. If he tells Matt that he knows what's up, Matt makes him stop, and all that prestige, all those cheers, all the glory that he's receiving go away. Likewise, if Matt tells Jack that he's training with this strange blind guy to learn martial arts, to learn how to use his fists in a physical, violent capacity, Jack would make him stop. But Matt learning the martial arts, training his senses, is kind of an extension, potentially, of the penance that I talked about last week, in which Matt's accident and the result are viewed as a burden because he broke a promise to Jack. Again, this is all subjective, but this is what I'm reading in the material. And since it's very relevant, I do want to remind everybody that with this narrative device of Matt writing a letter to Karen, uh, dictating exactly what's occurring in these events, we are looking at it through the focused lens of memory. Memory is unreliable. We can make ourselves seem better or worse than we were. It's our perception. And that might account also for some of the tweaks in what we see here. For example, in Daredevil number one, when Fixer and Slade show up, it's again casual, almost polite. Here, Fixer and Slade arrive in their guns a-blazing, much, much more brisk than the original telling in Daredevil number one. 
and the fight that ensues with Daredevil again taking the offensive, knocking these two down the steps into the lower level of the gym is a lot more controlled than what we saw in Daredevil number one. That was quite an awkward fight. And Daredevil number one, just to remind you, Daredevil gets knocked out a window, swings back, comes back in, only to have the rug literally pulled out from under him. They kind of have a moment where they best Daredevil. Now, I find this version more entertaining in a lot of ways. It's, of course, more dynamic, more assured, and more aggressive. But it's also Matt decorating a memory. If you look back at Daredevil number one, I'm going to take you to page four, panel four. Matt is about to enter Fogwell's gym. Just before all of these events. Now again, canon being what it is, it's malleable, but Matt says to himself, this will be a test to see if I'm as good as I think I am. There was a certain level of self-doubt and realistic self-doubt that's not present here. Matt had no idea how this was going to go. This was the first time he'd ever attempted anything. But through the prism of memory, Matt knows who Daredevil is now. He knows his skills. He's practiced. He has a very confirmed, very clear idea of who Daredevil is in terms of a costumed identity and a modus operandi. And I'm wondering if he's overlaying some of who Daredevil is onto who Daredevil wasn't yet. So some of the confidence, some of the skills, some of the experience being placed back at this memory at a place that it didn't belong. Making him seem a little bit better to himself, specifically in the mask, not as Matt Murdock. And that's kind of an interesting concept in itself, but it also gives Loeb and Sale a little bit of play to move around differently in the action sequences and play with their own style and their own presentation. And the big deviation happens at this point. As mentioned in the synopsis, the Fixer runs. He just gets the hell out of Dodge. Slade is left behind, where in the original, he accompanied the Fixer. The big difference is in the original, Daredevil was momentarily incapacitated. But he would face both of them in the subway. Here, Daredevil faces Slade within the actual gym itself, making it kind of poetically beautiful. Right next to the actual ring itself, where Jack himself would have trained, Matt faces Slade. And he orders Slade to testify, with Slade's own gun pointed at the man's face. The gun is likely the actual murder weapon of Jack Murdoch, literally turning that weapon back on the user. Now, of course, art-wise, we have a very solid close-up of Matt's angry face, and he's very intimidating. That's one thing I'll say about Sale's depiction of Daredevil at this stage versus Bill Everett's. Everett's looks stocky. This one is sleek. But let's not forget the context here. This is a 20-something guy who's just graduated college, putting on a costume for the first time. Daredevil is making this stuff up as he goes along. Again, making me wonder if there's an overlay of modern Daredevil onto Matt's own memory. Now, of course, that takes care of Slade, and this omits a big piece of the puzzle that bothered me about Daredevil number one. In Daredevil number one, we saw Matt change from his Daredevil costume into his civvies to pursue Slade and the Fixer in a very casual stroll down the lane. It replaces that chase with a far more adventurous trek, with Daredevil leaping across the rooftops, across a truck, sliding down railings to the subway on his billy club. Does it impact the overall story, either of these changes? No, it does not. The same thing is accomplished. Now, I do want to comment real quickly as Daredevil is coming down the subway that the colors here turn to a deep chocolate and caramel brown. In terms of the bricks and the stairs, it's very good, and it really does give that idea of a darker area. And if you look closely at the small tiles on the side of the wall, these things are incredibly detailed. They actually look like a reflective surface. Now, I wanted to kind of identify the locations here. When it comes to things like Fogwell's Gym, you have no address the way you do with the Daily Bugle, Matt's apartment, etc., while Marvel did a great job, especially with Ohatmu, of identifying specific locations, such as Doctor Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum, Fogwell's Jim and Nelson and Murdoch were very noticeably absent. So, it kind of leaves it up to me to do the guesswork. And I've done that. 
What I tried to do is start by identifying this subway station. And what do we know about Fogwell's gym? Well, originally it was in Manhattan's Lower West Side, which Hell's Kitchen is more Central West. But it's been retroactively moved into Hell's Kitchen. So if it's in Hell's Kitchen, how many subway stops are there? And there's really only one that's really close to Hell's Kitchen proper. As with any neighborhood, there's a kind of ebb and flow as to the actual location that that neighborhood ends. But by the Google Maps definition of Hell's Kitchen which matches all the other definitions I have, there's really only one relevant stop at the edge of Hell's Kitchen, since the west side is bordered by the actual river. That made things a little bit easier, because that stop is at 50th Street and 8th Avenue. To anchor this a little bit more, in the first episode of Season 1 of Daredevil, we see Foggy meeting the cop near that actual subway entrance, bribing him with cigars. Putting it firmly in there, at least in terms of Marvel Cinematic as well. Bear in mind, whenever you're mapping fictional locations, even when they're in a real city, there's a huge deviation. This may be a subway stop that only exists within the 616, but by all relevant bits... 50th Street and 8th Avenue is where this is occurring. Now, Fogwell's Gym, where is this going to be located? Well, without any defining features, that's going to be left up to a lot of debate and a little bit of guesswork. But this book actually gives us a little bit to work with. Matt mentions pursuing the fixer for three city blocks. Well, that gives us a range, doesn't it? Since this is on the eastern edge of Hell's Kitchen, we kind of have a small area to work with because, let's be honest, the fixer is not a healthy man. He's not running further than three blocks. I also took into account the presentation of Fogwell's Gym as we saw it in Daredevil Yellow Number 1, a two-story building with a third story that's actually an attic with a pitched roof sitting on a four-way stop next to residential area. Unfortunately, no buildings really fit this in the area, but... I found a location where I feel like Fogwell's gym would have been in the real world. It's something that doesn't quite fit in where it's at. I could tell there was a structure there before, but it's actually a mobile station. This is at 718 11th Avenue. This is, of course, in New York, so feel free to look this up on Google Maps. It's a small station. This is on the corner of 51st. This is about two city blocks and change right at three city blocks. To me, at least by my definition and not something that's definitive, that is where Fogwell's gym would have stood, were it not torn down in the real world. Now moving into the subway tunnel, the first thing that popped out at me that seemed strange was that the fixer kept his cigar in his mouth the whole time. Which of course helps Daredevil track him, but it's also kind of extraneous. Don't you think at some point if you're running you would want to get rid of the tar and the smoke? The second thing is that Daredevil actually looks really cool in the simple yellow and brown silhouette. A lot of his details are kind of washed out by distance and he looks pretty damn excellent. And of course the fixer is scared out of his gourd here. He is seeing the ghost of Jack Murdoch. He actually mentions it. He knows what's up and he's so desperate to get away that he jumps onto the tracks. This is extremely dangerous. If you hit the third rail, you fry. But he's willing to take that risk to get away from Daredevil. And as Daredevil's tracking him, there's a mention where he feels like he's inside the man because he is tracking with so much focus that he smells the cigars, he hears the change, etc., etc. There is only one target, and everything between him and the target is irrelevant. And of course, this is an inverse to how Matt described his presence with Jack. With Jack, it felt like Jack's heartbeat was within Matt. Jack was a part of Matt. With this, Matt is so consumed that this man is being taken in as part of every sense. And Matt's mentioning, don't fall down, not before I get to hit you. And you're not going to take a dive, mister. Matt is ready for this fight. And that also tells me, first of all, that this is not the level-headed, cocky hero we saw in Daredevil number one. Sure, Matt had his doubts before he went in, but we saw a certain cockiness and a certain awkwardness. It's clear that he doesn't want to kill the fixer, but it's clear that he wants to mess the fixer up big time. Maybe knock out a few teeth. 
And it becomes really relevant to me that the fixer died, of course, by his own excess, his own heart. Eating wrong, smoking cigars, living the wrong life. That corruption ate him up. But on the other side of that equation is Matt didn't get to hit him. He didn't solve this particular portion of the equation with his fists. And somehow, that leaves a shred of integrity, a shred of the promise he made to Jack Murdoch, that all-encompassing promise, keeps it intact to a small extent. All he did was literally scare him to death, which was kind of a use of his brains rather than his brawn. And the scene kind of wraps up with Daredevil switching the track so the train bypasses the Fixer's body, so at least the Fixer's husk is going to face some form of justice. As well, covering Daredevil's own tail, so proving he didn't kill the Fixer. And it occurs to me here, the task is done. Yes, there's a little bit of cleanup, getting the Fixer's body to the police, etc., but the task is done. And the big question for me is, is Matt satisfied? As much anger as we're seeing on the page, as much concentration on hunting these two men down, His very need for Daredevil has been satisfied. Is Matt content with this outcome? Again, the persona of Daredevil, by all accounts, every origin you see matches this. The persona of Daredevil, the image that you see, is created for this one task. And we have to assume that Matt is not satisfied with this because he keeps on going. Or is there something else there? And that's kind of the big piece of the puzzle for this issue for me. Matt continues being Daredevil, even after this is done. And that's not an easy question to answer. It's not something where we're going to come up with a definitive yes or no, this is the reason. But we can chew on some of the potential ideas. Building off of one of my own ideas, last week I mentioned that the senses, the accident, the blindness, were a result of Matt taking action to save a man, and therefore, to some extent, breaking his promise to Jack. At least in terms of Matt's own perception. If that were true, then Matt taking this action now, even in the guise of Daredevil, would be an extension of that penance. Here, Matt used everything at his disposal. His physical ability, his senses most certainly, and also his fists back at Fogwell's. Daredevil is a big loophole to the promise to Jack, something that's utterly important to Matt. Therefore, it becomes sort of a burden. So this may be a continuation of that. This is his penance, making things right. Let me put another piece of the puzzle on the table here. Matt mentions in his thought process that Karen was the first one to call him man without fear, and he reveled in it. To which he follows that up by saying, I'm so much like my dad. This is an indication to me of a certain level of pride. Kind of a theme I've been working with. Ego. He likes the attention. He likes the validation. And to be a superhero, you would have to have a certain level of ego. After all, you're dressing up, you're facing supervillains, certain death, and overcoming. So that has to be a part of him. So I don't want ego to sound like it's completely negative. It's a very human thing to have. Now, if we're going to argue ego, we should also put on the idea of insecurity. Matt was teased, he was bullied after he went blind, he was pitied and treated as a handicap, and essentially he was the underdog, and he likes the idea of the underdog making good. As Daredevil, he can do what he could not do as Matt Murdock in several levels. So whether it's insecurity or ego, that's going to result in one thing, but you have to look at this fact. Matt wholeheartedly believes in justice. Revenge would be easy here. He could kill Fixer, he could kill Slade, and that would solve that. That would be revenge, but it's not justice. And justice comes in many forms, such as Matt stringently sticking to his studies despite the fact that he's taking a lot of crap for it. And in the end, Matt graduating as valedictorian of one of the greatest law schools in the land as a result. Those bullies aren't laughing now, and that's another theme that we see here repeated. And Matt's belief in justice is very important. Yes, Matt believes in justice wholeheartedly. He also believes in the justice system. He truly does believe the justice system works. But Matt has to admit it doesn't work 100% of the time. So even if ego and insecurity are factors or the driving factors, there's also this idea of a reluctant pragmatic that, hey, his beloved justice system isn't 100% infallible. Because Matt's 
able to see that the same mechanics that make the legal system successful are also the ones that drag them down, the rules, the processes. And as Daredevil, he can bypass that. Essentially, the justice system faces its own kryptonite, and Daredevil would be the solution to that. Let's throw one more thing on the table here. The idea of the bullies not laughing anymore. It's been repeated twice in the book. This represents a certain victory of oppression, an escape, if you will. Matt is no longer bound by the rules that he has when he's in his civilian guise. As a blind man, Matt Murdock has certain expectations of him, that there are certain things he can't do. Matt is an exception to the rule. As Daredevil, he can overcome that. How many times have we seen Matt put on the Daredevil costume to work out and clear his head? Or take a swing across the system to try to concentrate? It's there. Daredevil is an escape. Daredevil is also a thrill. There's an adrenaline rush to that. So some of the things we're looking at here are ego, insecurity, which are kind of intertwined, a reluctant pragmatism, the idea that he's going to supplement the legal system where it fails because he loves that legal system so much. His belief in justice is so devout, he will see it through either way. We also have that escape, that adrenaline idea, which are kind of also intertwined much like ego and insecurity. As Daredevil, he can do what other people can't, and that's a thrill. And within the context of Daredevil's issues, he's kind of addressed each one of these objects. Now, is any single one of them a greater factor than the other? I don't know. Again, this is not going to be something we can answer definitively, but there's a lot on the table that would drive a man like Matt to continue being a superhero regardless of the reason he put on the costume. And he does continue, this is not the end of the saga as you would expect it to be, it is only the beginning. I should also point out that Foggy at this moment is doing all the administrative work over at Nelson and Murdoch, of course going through the interviews for new secretaries. And he's doing so without Matt's help because Matt is out playing superhero. Now this is a personal situation, Matt had to do it, he was driven to do it, as we saw he was consumed by it. But it does show a certain degree of priority for Matt that Daredevil is going to be, to some greater or lesser extent, a higher priority than some of the goings-on at Nelson and Murdoch. And of course, these interviews are played for laughs, much like Mrs. Doubtfire when Robin Williams was calling as the false interviewers. But this also allows Karen to be this breath of fresh air, and since Karen is the main thesis of the story, and perhaps another building block to why Matt continued being Daredevil, her entrance is important. Her revelation at the last page is extremely relevant. And it kind of matches what we saw in Daredevil number one, in which Karen is introduced in a single panel. It's a bit out of sync, which may be important. Looking back one more time at Daredevil number one, Karen, Foggy, and Matt were already established as the law firm of Nelson and Murdoch before Matt became Daredevil. And this could have been just a choice on Loeb's part, just a way to wrap up this particular issue in a big grand style, but it could also be something more. Again, we're going through the prism of Matt's memories. Is Matt forgetting that Karen came first and putting a certain level of inspiration to Karen or omitting inspiration? Given what we've just talked about, ego versus insecurity, lack of justice, the idea that he likes the validation of being Daredevil, Karen would probably be looked at as one of the big pieces of that validation. Karen may be a big piece of the inspiration that perpetuates Daredevil. Now, of course, that's going to be discussed as the subsequent four issues come, and I'm not going to dive too far into the Matt Karen Foggy dynamic because we've got a lot of ground to cover on that in the next four episodes. But it is important to note that this is officially the end of the origin. This is the end of the same time frame covered in Daredevil number one. The Lobe Sale Yellow series took two issues to accomplish what one issue did previously. Now, of course, we're looking at artistic license and playing with a character study as well, but it would be a bit hypocritical of me not to mention that this is also a result of decompressed storytelling in the 21st century. So overall, what do we think of Daredevil Yellow number two? 
With the first issue, I felt like that was kind of complete unto itself and came to a natural stopping point. This one doesn't feel quite as complete. It doesn't work without the first issue and comes to a very odd stopping point with the introduction of Karen Page, not quite as exciting as Daredevil donning his duds for the first time. Essentially, this issue was a long, drawn-out fight extended upon material that had already been written, yet it brings a few things to the table, things we've learned about Matt since we are doing a character study. First thing that stands out to me is Matt is not above ego, and he admits it by saying he's so much like his father. Also, that Matt was internally angrier than he appeared in Daredevil number one. It also emphasizes just what a big piece of the puzzle Karen Page is to the whole Daredevil saga, but ultimately didn't add a whole lot other than a little bit of introspection that was put on the page very early in the issue. In comparison to the original Daredevil number one, the internal thought processes were made privy to, as well as the future knowledge, since it is looking back from the present day, they do manage to put a new light on some of these events. It just happens to be a dim light. Now that will kind of come and go as we look at the next few issues, which are going to change pace pretty dramatically. But now that the origin, whose building blocks are very familiar, is out of the way, the series is free to play with times and perspectives. Tim Sale has real moments of brilliance, primarily with the bodywork of Daredevil when he's in a pose. When Daredevil's allowed to be basically a pinup, Tim Sale is on top of that. And of course, Loeb is keeping the status quo since these events are vital and familiar, but he manages to make sure he's not completely slavish to the original material, giving us some new aspects. But ultimately, just not quite as satisfying as the first issue. Something was lost, some core emotion, and really, some of the narrative got thinner in this issue, too. I think the first and second issues could have been very well condensed into one. In fact, the whole series, in my opinion, could have been four issues. But this is a very clear state of decompressed storytelling versus the extreme extreme brevity of the original first issue. It essentially comes down to artistic interpretation. Loeb and Sale are exploring the space and really just trying to make a good, beautiful-looking story to boot. So far, they're managing it. This is just the wavering point for me. But ultimately, a lot of good things put on the table this week that we're going to be exploring in subsequent weeks. A lot of things I'm excited to talk about. But for this round, we are coming to the end of an episode. Next week, the Fantastic Four, Superhero Courtship Rituals, Hustling Pool, Femme Fatales, and The Owl enter the Young Hero's World and Daredevil Yellow number 2. That is in one week. Between now and then, please enjoy Daredevil Season 2 when it hits this Friday. I know I will be watching. And until next time, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a J. David Weider production and is made for entertainment purposes only. The show does not draw profit from the characters or materials discussed. All opinions are those of the host and do not reflect the views of any other individual, entity, or organization. The copyrights for any music or sound clips used lie with the copyright holders. They are used for entertainment purposes only and no infringement is intended. Go brighter when you hear his name.